0: It's Friday, March the 20th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I am joined by Fintan O'Toole, who's in Glasnevin, quite adjacent to my own North Dublin suburb of Marino. Fintan, you've just arrived back in Ireland from Australia, a very long journey, and you're self-isolating now.
1: Yeah, I, I went out three over three weeks ago, <laughs> and, um, before the thing really kind of hit uh, on the level that it has in in Europe. Um, and uh, you know when you're there and you're trying to follow it, and obviously it's a huge global story, but you become very anxious about getting back. Um, the, you know, the, are they going to close the airports? Um, will there be flights? Uh, Qantas, which is the Australian airline, has really just more or less shut down. Um, you know, so so just the physical business of of how do you get from one side of the world to the other. Uh, becomes um, a source of great anxiety, <laughs> but we made it. And uh, but but obviously, so we, myself and my wife were there. But you know, we don't have any symptoms. But uh, we're self-isolating. Uh, just I think because it's the right thing to do. Because we've been through four airports in the last couple of days. You know, and you you, you uh, obviously are at a, at a higher risk. Uh, so you don't want to cause any trouble to anybody else.
0: And what was the atmosphere like on the different flights you, you took and the different airports you went through?
1: It's absolutely eerie, you know. It, it's 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 very very strange. Um, if you weren't so anxious, it would be lovely, you know. It it almost reminds me of the like the very old days when um, you know most people didn't travel much by air and and a lot of flights were half empty, you know. <laughs> So, you know, we, we, we traveled, I mean, even in Australia, so we, we traveled down from Canberra down to Melbourne, and, you know, Canberra being the kind of political capital, Melbourne being the sort of business capital, you know, you'd think it's a really, really busy route. They they canceled the flight we were supposed to be on and, and put the, put two flights together, and even still, it was half full, you know. Um, and then going through the airports, and going to Melbourne and Abu Dhabi and then um, Heathrow and then Dublin airports, you know, and, I mean, they're all half-empty, quiet. Um, there's just a sort of stillness to the whole thing, and and the planes themselves are, are largely empty. And it just, you know, it, it, you you do really wonder um, how long most of these airlines are going to keep going. Um, just, just you know, none of this can be economically viable. The airports themselves must be must be losing a hell of a lot of money. And of course, you're struck with just enormous sympathy for the people who are working in both, you know, the the, the, the stewards on the planes, pilots, so, you know, all that's a huge amount of staff working on planes. But then the vast number of people who work in airports, you know, in the shops and the operational side of it, it, it just really brings home to you, you know, you're, that you're, you're looking at people who, who could be out of work very, very fast. And, and you know, you just feel huge sympathy for them.
0: Yeah, and we we we'll maybe come to some of that in in a little while, but but actually, one of the things that that this has done, at least not not the most important one, but interesting nonetheless, is it sort of reveals to everybody what their work is, and you and I have the privilege of being able to do most of our work to keep doing it at home. And you in particular, uh, I think our listeners are getting a sense of the different ways that people go about their jobs. I was talking to Pat Leahy about his one uh, on Wednesday and uh, it may come as a surprise to our listeners, but you don't traditionally turn up at the Irish Times at 9.30 every morning to clock in and turn out your allotted uh, your allotted number of words. You're a writer uh, and like many writers, you have, you live in a, in, a, in a slightly isolated world anyway at the best of times.
1: Yeah, I I generally work in my attic, you know. So I'm a like kind of crow's nest, you know. And uh, I I self isolate uh, during the day. I mean, I I've been working on and off, but I mean, mostly on really. I've been working from home, you know, since since the late 1980s. Um, you know, when people didn't really do it much. Um, you know, I'm I'm of an age to have sort of writ- written my stuff at home and then gone in, on into the Irish Times on the bus, you know, to deliver the copy. I mean, first in sort of hard form and then, you know, floppy disks and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, once once you're able to connect electronically, you know, um, if you're writing, you're better off. Some people really like writing in an office and like all the noise and all the distraction. I. I, I work a lot better, um, when I'm, when I'm on my own. So I've, I've done that for a long, long time. And I know what it's like, you know, cause I had little kids for a lot of that time. And, and, you know, we didn't have a huge amount of space and, uh, but you, you do, you do get used to forming a kind of, uh, set of rules in the household, you know, when, when, when the kids are allowed to, to, to bother you when they're not. And, um, all of that does become just kind of taken for granted. But I, I I think it's very difficult for people who are used to working in an office, and particularly when you've got little kids. And little kids, it's hard to explain to them why their routine has suddenly changed. And, of course, everything else has changed for them as well. Uh, so I I've, I've, I've have a lot of sympathy for people who are in that situation. But I say I'm extremely privileged. You know, I can if you can if you can file a copy from Australia, you know, you can certainly file it from Glasgow.
0: You, I mean, you have a piece in the Irish Times this weekend in the in the weekend edition, and it's really an overview of some some thoughts on where we are and and where we might be going. And one of them actually is is about that very subject. That it has been revealed that you know many many people can work from work from home. Many others can't, of course, and we we'll maybe talk about them in a little while. But it begs the question of why uh, the cities of the world, including our own city Dublin, are flinging up bigger and bigger and taller office blocks all the time and whether that will continue after this.
1: Yeah, it's 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 kind of weird back to the future feeling, isn't it? Um the future we were supposed to have, you know. If you go back 20 years ago, of course you know much more about this and you've written much more about it than I have, but you know, 20 years ago the the orthodoxy was that the new technologies were going to mean that, you know, there would be far fewer people in offices. That we wouldn't be having very many physical meetings because we wouldn't need to do that, um, you know. That that we would all be connected remotely, um, and that sort of physical presence would be a much rarer aspect of of day to day working life for huge numbers of people. Um, and it's a future that didn't really happen, you know. It's 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 uh, you know it's it's odd when you think about it what what we're this crisis is kind of forcing us to realise is that we have these capacities, um, but we 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 just haven't been using them, because it turns out actually we quite like um, social interaction and, and you know we 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 like looking people physically in the eye and 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 uh, ha- having that kind of relationship, uh, but it's not necessary uh, for for an awful lot of people. I mean, as you say, it is for 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 very many people. For for a lot of us, it's really not necessary. Uh, and it does begin to make you look around you. You know, and i was just thinking if you if you look on the Dublin skyline, you know the way it's 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 thick with cranes again, and most of that, as we know, is not social housing or or, or housing of any kind. I mean, most of it is is office development, uh, and it's it's almost as if we're in the middle of a crisis, and we suddenly realize you know we're 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 building for a way of life uh, which is which is being profoundly challenged by this crisis uh, and it, this is not it's not just about you know wor- workplaces but i was thinking about things like universities you know for example because i i i was in uh, australia you know talking in in in, in 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 two of their main universities and i have some experience over the states and you think you know, just thinking about this and. Like, there's a funny dilemma for universities, right, which is they're, they're, all, um, they're all shifting online, so courses are being done online. Um, most universities, including most Irish universities now, of course, depend financially very much on students traveling from very far away. I mean, the, the, the Chinese student population is, 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 is enormous, and most of those students have gone home, and they're doing their courses online. Now, the dilemma is, if this works... I mean, if if it's really successful, you know, a lot of those students are going to be saying, hold on a minute. Why am I bothering to go to Dublin or Melbourne or New York? You know, wh- wh- why am I doing that uh, when I can do this perfectly happily uh, by staying at home which is much much cheaper? And of course, universities will would would all say, well, you know, the experience of the university is an experience of physical presence. It's a place. It's a set of relationships. Uh, it's a way of teaching, you know it's, it's it's you've got contact with your with your with your uh, teachers in a kind of very intimate sort of way. It's great um, but but it, if the experiment is now being forced and everybody is very successful, a lot of the assumptions we make about these things are 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 going to start being challenged in a, in, in a very profound way about working, about education, uh, about all of these kind of um institutional relationships, if you like, uh, that we currently do with physical presence, uh, are a lot of those going to be pushed into a virtual space? And that, if, if they are, that has huge implications for everything, not just the way we work, but also, you know, what do our cities look like? How do we, how do we actually plan? What kind of future should we be thinking about in terms of the spatial arrangements um, that might make sense of this new world? I I do wonder
0: about that. I mean, I mean, you're right. I've written a bit about this over the over the last couple of years as well, and one of the. Phenomena which I observed over the last five years or so was that in a world which was increasingly defined supposedly by digital communication, there was there was an increased appetite for sharing physical space with real people in a real room or a real field or a real whatever for that matter, and we saw that in the kind of the explosion of kind of live events, you know, talks, um, festivals, small and big, um, a sort of a pushback against that digital thing, and I do wonder, and God knows, it's early days. But if we're going to be locked up with no social, real, physical interaction for a period of months or however long it's going to be, it's going to force everybody to think uh, a lot more consciously rather than subconsciously about how important that human interaction is. And it might go the other way.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. So so one of the things we have got to be very careful about at, at a moment like this, you know, where, where we really, we, we don't have a clue, you know, we don't, we don't know how long this is going to last. Uh, We don't know how appalling it's going to be. We know it's going to be terrible and we know it's going to have huge kind of social, economic, political implications. We don't really know fully what they are. Uh, And, uh, you you know, I was uh, when trying to write this thing for tomorrow, I was just drawing the analogy between the great flu, Spanish flu um, pandemic uh, after the First World War, uh, which we would hope you know, it was much worse than what we're experiencing now. Uh, incredibly um, devastating, absolutely devastating. You know, it kills more people than the war itself. And yet you think, okay, well, project forward from that into the 1920s. What are the 20s remembered for? You know, they're not remembered for, uh, you know, a kind of Puritan, um, you know, uh, 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 contained, controlled kind of culture. They're remembered for absolutely the opposite, right? So 1920s certainly in the West, you know, is the jazz age. It's the age of, of, of speakeasies and cabarets and, and, and you know, loose morals by the, by the standards of the time and women wearing shorter dresses and, and bobbed hair and smoking. And, you know, the, the, the social patterns change very, very radically, but they change in the opposite of the direction you might expect. So you're you're absolutely right. I think, you know, to to, to be very cautious about this. I mean, it's it, it's quite possible we may, in fact, want to, you know, a lot, lot more uh social interaction. But what may be the case is that we start dividing up much more. Uh so so maybe we say more and more of our working lives for those for whom it is possible, and we have to stress this, right? a huge number of people for whom it's not possible and of course they tend to be the people who are more vulnerable and who are worse paid and who are in jobs that are that that are more insecure but for those for whom it is possible i think we will start questioning ourselves much more about you know do i really need to make that journey do i really need to be in the office do i really need to to, to have those kinds of interactions and then maybe dividing that up and saying well actually uh, the the social interactions i want are much more obviously pleasurable or much more obviously about, uh, you know, the enjoyment of other people rather than being functional. So, so maybe we get to a point where we say, look, the functional stuff is the stuff that we deal with virtually and, and the rest of it is what we deal with in, 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 in the analog world of physical presence.
0: Just listening to you talking about the the Spanish flu there, there's a concept in psychology and I think partly in philosophy as well, and I'm going to mangle it now, so apologies to any philosophers or psychologists who are listening, which is of of heuristics, which is the idea that we all have various frameworks which are established by culture and our own personalities and experience that we bring to any new experience. So if I'm listening to an American broadcaster talking about uh, COVID-19 spread, they very often use the metaphors of the extreme weather Events which people are familiar with in the United States, whereas here people are talking more about the Spanish flu as a kind of a, as a framework within which to think, or or an awful lot about World War Two. Uh, you hear a lot that this is the uh, this is the biggest, this is the most kind of shocking event um, to to hit Europe in particular since uh, since the end of the Second World War. How useful is something like the war
1: metaphor? Do you think for this? Um. I think it's 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 dangerous, isn't it? You know, because th- th- this isn't a war, and and uh, you know, obviously, people like Susan Santag wrote brilliantly about you know the the use of illness as a metaphor. You know, and she wrote brilliantly about the, one of her main con- you know concerns was, in fact, the war on cancer. You know, the, the t- talking about other illnesses uh, it through this kind of framework, you know, it actually. It's not only not very useful, but uh, the problem with the war metaphors is, of course, that the war is there's always an enemy, you know, there's a human enemy. And in a way, if you if you think about what Donald Trump's trying to do, for example, he's he's absolutely trying to frame this in, at least in Cold War terms, you know the Chinese virus, the foreign virus, uh, you know, America is under attack. That, that, that sort of rhetoric, uh, we're going to see more and more of, and we're going to see more and more of it in those governments which are f- flailing, uh, as of course Trump's is, you know. Um, and so that sort of war, I, th- I think people sometimes mean well by it, and, and there are, genuine parallels, I suppose, in terms of thinking about the the degree of national concentration that's necessary, the degree of internal cooperation that's necessary, maybe even the degree of authoritarianism that's necessary in the parts of governments, you know, so governments in wartime take on these kinds of powers, and we're certainly seeing that happen. So there are some sort of useful points of contact, but I think as a way of thinking about this, um, it's it's, it's, it's more dangerous than useful.
0: There... um one of the one of the strangenesses of this experience is because we now exist in 24-hour real time with everywhere else in the world, we're looking at our own experiences close to home to our own personal friends and colleagues, to our own local media, but also at what's, at least I am, at what's happening in other countries as well. And everybody's on a slightly different timescale. And there are clearly different experiences happening in different countries and those experiences are governed from everything from good governance to the state of a local health service to the demographics and the age of a population to even the kind of the architecture that they live in, the size of the cities versus rural dispersal and all those kinds of things. Paul Cullen, our health correspondent, has been writing very well about this over the last couple of days. All those kind of things are going to influence our own experiences where we live now, particularly now that increasingly borders have been locked down uh, across the planet?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think it's a great point. And I, I agree. So I, think, I think Paul's been writing really brilliantly about, you know, incredibly calmly and just, you know, very information-based. Uh, I hope one of the, you know, it sounds very self-serving, but I do hope one of the things that people think about in relation to this crisis is, you know, the importance of, cool analysis and uh, and of of, of fact-based communication you know if 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 we have a function it's it's primarily that Um, uh, but you're absolutely right it's 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 a weird mix isn't it of 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 was now an almost universal experience Uh, and uh, you know a very immediate sense of, of of one's own community one's own house, you know, uh, so it's, 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 it's changing our sense both of far distance and of intimate proximity. You know, it's, it, it's, it's playing funny games with our sense of, you know, the, I'm thinking of the father Ted thing about, you know, small, far away, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the far away, of course is no longer far away. I mean, the, 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 the astonishing speed with which this virus has, has taken hold, um, you know, there's, there's nothing unparalleled at all in history about viruses spreading over great distances. That, that's happened. But it's the speed of it and the immediacy of it you know, has brought home to us in 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 just the most horrible, tangible way that we, you know, we share the planet. All those cliches you know, about, about planetary consciousness, you know, have, have just become uh, the reality that we're living in. And on the other hand, then we're kind of forced into our own cultures, our own worlds, our own um, news cycles. Uh, As you say, society is dealing with things differently, Um, dealing with deaths differently. You know, like one doesn't want to overstate the differences, but, you know, there's a lovely little video online of a village in Kerry, you know, where obviously a very beloved elderly lady who died. And and just the film on the front of the the car, because nobody can go to to see her, nobody can go to the funeral, you know. Just the the village lining up, you know, in in proper social distance, you know, along a two kilometer stretch or whatever, out to the out to the graveyard. You know, it, it sort of puts puts people in touch with the very local. I mean, really, the sense of uh, you know how 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 do we ourselves collectively deal with these traumas which are going to happen more and more? And I think it's really it's really important that we we hold on to that, isn't it? You know that that that. Um, the, the terrible, the worst thing that can happen in a crisis like this is that the deaths become statistics. You know, that each individual ceases to have the weight uh, that they ought to have, and as and the numbers mount, you know, they just become numbers. I think it was Stalin said that one one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is is a, is a, a, a statistic. You know, and we certainly don't want our loved ones to become statistics, you know. So holding off that very, very immediate sense of connection uh, in our own families and in our communities, I think is one of the things that psychologically is going to be most important about get, getting through this. There's going to be terrible suffering and terrible sadness. Um, and actually, I know this sounds terribly stupid, but the sadness is our survival mechanism you know it's sadness is the thing that tells us that this is this is a person you know it's not a number um it's it's it, each one of these deaths including deaths of very elderly people are going to have you know terrible um, consequences for other people you know it's, it's going to be there's going to be a lot of mourning going on but m- mourning is one of the things that our society i think does actually quite well um and And we may have to find ways of doing that which are not the traditional ones you know we 're not going to be having our wakes, we may not be having even our funerals. Those are going to be very very hurtful things in our society and finding ways to to grieve collectively i think is 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 probably going to be one of things we're going to have to try and try and find our way towards over the course of this crisis.
0: Something else that adds to the general sense of strangeness for for me at least anyway is that on the one hand we're all experiencing something that we have never experienced in our lifetimes. And on the other hand, we are all experiencing something which has really been part of the universal human experience since humans were on the planet, which is pandemics, and was just charted right back to the earliest kind of stories and pictures of human experience. You wrote a bit about that in ticket in the Irish Times last Saturday, and you refer to that in your in your piece this weekend as well. There is nothing more ageless than the experience of plague uh, you know pestilence is one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse
1: yeah you know it's, 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 it's a terrible. Thing, um, to, that we are connected to the past in this way. But it, it's very I've been in touch with some historians' friends, you know, and it's interesting, uh, particularly historians who kind of write about the pre-modern world, you know. Uh, and they've all been kind of spontaneously saying, you know, for the first time, I I I now feel what it's like to live through these things that I've written about as a historian. You know, so so any historian in the pre-modern world has written about. It. Pandemics, you know, in one form or another, you know, whether directly or indirectly, they're they're part of, as you say, the human experience of 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 you know almost the entire um, length of human history, and we're we're suddenly kind of connected with it. Um, I I, I mean, I I was writing a while ago about this. You know, I I'm, I'm 62, and I, I suddenly feel more connected to my childhood now than I did for a long time because the the, the Ireland I grew up in you know was a world of contagious infection you know the, this this whole idea of contagious infection wasn't something we needed to be told about you know it was it was saturated in daily life um, you know i i remember the signs on the buses saying, you know, please do not expectorate. And I don't remember a time when I didn't know that expectorate meant spit. <laughs> and that I didn't know why you weren't supposed to spit on the bus, you know, because you will be spreading infection, uh, coughs and sneezes, spread diseases, all that kind of stuff, you know. Uh, and, and it was, uh, TB had been pretty much eradicated when I was a kid, but there was still diphtheria, whooping cough, scarlet fever, there were still kids in 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 school you know with with calipers on their legs from from the polio epidemic um, and, and you know it was a terrible world to live in, but it it was i mean at least it had the sense that we understood you know in the most vivid way that we were connected to each other through health you know that that health couldn't be something that was just sort of individual about you know if you go to the gym and you, you eat eat the proper diet you're taking care of your health We, you know we, we all knew um because we had to that that health was 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 a collective proposition as well and we are being thrust back into into that consciousness uh, very very suddenly you know we we all realize that you know, of course there are diseases that are not communicable but that um, we're in a pandemic where, you know, none of us can be safe unless everybody is safe. And uh, I think there's maybe one of the long term consequences of, 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 of this awful period, which is that we start thinking again about uh, this, just our mutual dependence on each other, um, not just in some sort of abstract, you know, nice human rights way, but in this very, very visceral way that if there's a slum, a slum will be a a vector for disease. Uh, that's why people cleared slums. You know that the rich didn't suddenly decide that they loved poor people. They decided, you know, in in nineteenth century, in the early twentieth century, that, that ultimately they could not be safe from all of these many, many, many communicable diseases uh, unless there was a notion of public hygiene. And and public hygiene wasn't just about washing your hands. It was about building decent housing and, and having clean water and having good sanitation. It's, it's, a, it's a public political thing. And I think maybe looking forward, you know, this is this is uh, this this realisation is going to come back to us, I think, and we're going to have to start thinking collectively uh, in in more profound ways than we've been doing for the last 20 years.
0: And the other part of this, and we don't have time to go into it and, and probably not qualified to talk about it, at least certainly I am, and, but it's clearly... Extremely important is that, in parallel with the health crisis of the pandemic there 's an economic shock and an ensuing crisis, which I think everybody agrees now is going to lead to a serious recession and Who knows what might follow that and you were referring earlier on to the workers in the airports and the various other pe- people who are losing their jobs immediately, their jobs are gone an extraordinary spike in unemployment here just in the last in the last seven days or so in the pub trade and travel and various services as well um, and Awful though that is, there is a sense that well, those jobs surely will come back when we get through this. People will will still want all those services and they'll need all those things. But the companies that employ them may not make it through. So it's really an open question as to what kind of world might be on the other side of this. Maybe it's futile to speculate about it at this point, but I'd say it's not futile to speculate for all those people who, who are unemployed right now.
1: Well, it absolutely isn't, you know. And, and, and uh, you know... I think the Irish government has done reasonably well in in having a fairly quick response to, to at least to sick leave, you know, and to saying, well, actually, you know, we're going to we're going to underwrite and guarantee uh, some kind of basic payments to people. Um, but it it like what we know about every crisis that we've 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 dealt with is that the crises uh, disproportionately affect the most vulnerable. And that's not just in terms of health in this thing, but it's also in terms of our economics. You know, people who who can't self-isolate because if they don't turn up to work, they don't get paid. Or people who are, as you say, working in you know all this huge swathe of transport, hospitality, all of those kinds of areas, uh, services of of all kinds, from the hairdressers, the the nail bars, you know, all that stuff. I mean, all those people are going to be thrown out of work, and 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 maybe for quite a quite a period. You know, we don't really know where, when is it going to be safe for those people to go back to work. And so we know that this is this has happened over and over with these crises, and the long-term effects are that it 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 it, it, it you know creates even more inequality, right? Because it takes those people a very long time to recover at uh, just to some kind of decent economic level, whereas people who are more resources recover more quickly so it deepens the inequalities so you know and it, it, it leads to even more insecurity and then the next crisis does the same thing over and over again so we really have to manage this in such a way that that doesn't happen you know and and that does mean i think a very maybe a very command economy for 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 this year certainly you know where there's a, a determination on the part of the states that people are going to be supported That where businesses can be kept in existence, uh, if they're decent, viable businesses, that they are kept in existence. And the point you make is really important, you know, most of these services are are going to come back in terms of demand. But if you're a small hairdresser, for example, and you employ four people, you know, people might want to have their hair cut in in October, but you might not be in business because you can't pay the rent and you can't you can't sustain yourself. Uh, So, you know, government policy is going to have to be directed very, 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 Unapologetically towards keeping people afloat and keeping small businesses afloat. Seventy-five percent of people in the Irish economy work in small and medium-sized businesses. You know, we we think of the apples and we think of the the Googles and we think of the the big pharmaceutical companies and all that sort of stuff. But in terms of working, most people in Ireland work in in reasonably small-scale companies. And and if you devastate those companies. Uh, then, then uh, the consequences are, are, are pretty horrendous. So I'm going to have to dump all the fiscal rules, going to have to dump all that sense of, you know, um, uh, let's, let's start paying down the national debt, all that kind of stuff. I mean, we, you know, what, what, whatever the state has got is going to have to be thrown at just trying to, trying to keep people afloat.
0: Yes, indeed. All of that and much, much more ahead. We're going to leave it there for today, but thanks to Finton, thanks also to Declan Conlon for producing, and to JJ Vernon, who was on the virtual remote desk. Before I go, this is the bit again where I ask you to subscribe to the Irish Times because, as Finton said, no matter how events unfold over the next few months, we are going to continue to need reliable journalism that we can trust. So if you can, please go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe, where you can sign up for the introductory price of one euro for the first month. And just to remind you again that you can find our sister podcast, Confronting Coronavirus, on our existing Worldview podcast feed, which, like this podcast, is on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Acast, and all the other major platforms, and also at irishtimes.com podcasts. You can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much for listening.